Primary control of critical vehicle function. Welcome to Future Thinking, episode 86. I recently read the book Climate, Uncertainty and Risk, written by Judith Curry, who is one of the leading US climate scientists, but also an important heterodox thinker. I loved her book, not only because of her take on climate change, but also because she covers a lot of essential topics that are applicable in other complex problems as well, such as how to deal with complex systems, wicked problems, risk assessment and management, resilience of societies, robust decision-making, the severe quality problems we find in science today, and many others. Seasoned listeners will recognize that I covered many of these topics already in early episodes. However, I was very happy that Dr. Couric read to this conversation because there's a lot to learn from her experience. For this episode, I will not introduce my guest here because we discuss her background at the beginning of our conversation. This podcast is usually in German, but I have a growing number of English episodes. So on the podcast website, you can click on the tags menu and filter by language if you want to listen either only the German or English episodes. As usual, please check the show notes for references to other episodes, books, videos and so on that were mentioned in this episode. This podcast is free of charge and also, as you will have noticed, free of annoying ads. Please support this project by sharing it with friends and family, colleagues or on social networks. Now, without further ado, Dr. Judith Curry on climate uncertainty and risk. So I say good morning or good evening, depending on where we are. <laughs> Professor Judith Curry, thank you for participating in the conversation with me. Thanks for inviting me. Usually I do not go into depth, into introduction in the conversation, but I really would like to ask a little bit about your background, because when I checked out your CV, and it's actually quite impressive, you have about 200 referee publications, you were a professor in Boulder, Colorado, and if I saw it correctly, you were 12 years a chair of the Earth's Atmospheric Science Lab or Department of Georgia Tech. You gave, you had five Congress testimonials from 2006 to 2014. And oh, I've had 13. 13. 13. 13. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Only, okay, 13, even more. Wow. And I think you were also one of the early scientists who got public with climate change topics. But then I guess there were some political controversies or there were some I think some issues about maybe integrity of science. Could you maybe give us a little bit of your background so that we understand this a bit better? Because I think it's also quite interesting to understand more about your book and what we're going to talk later on. Okay. Yeah. So I can talk about, well, sort of starting in 2015 and into the climate gate era and why I eventually resigned my faculty position. That's about five minutes story. So yeah, maybe you give us a little bit of a background. What was troubling you or maybe what was the controversy about? Okay. Well, I entered the public debate on climate change in 2005 following publication of a paper that found that the percent of category four and five hurricanes had doubled since 1970. And through just a pure fluke of timing. This paper was published two weeks after Hurricane Katrina devastated New Orleans in the U.S. So we got an insane amount of publicity and everybody, you know, the global warming connection was not a big part of our paper, but this is what everybody wanted to talk about. You know, oh, is this global warming? 
I and my co-authors had to make a choice as to where we were going to stand, you know, on the climate change issue at that point, because we were being asked about it, you know, national television and everything. And we decided that the responsible thing was to support the IPCC, the UN Climate Assessments and our public statements on climate change. You know, that was my attitude. However, I had nagging doubts about how they were dealing with uncertainties. And I thought a lot of what they were saying was overconfident. A real incredible change point happened in November of 2009 with the release of the so-called climate gate emails, the unauthored, the hacking apparently of the University of East Anglia climate scientist emails, many of whom were IPCC lead authors and were in communication with many other IPCC personnel. So this was a very rich trove of information. And what I saw in those emails absolutely appalled me. I saw a lot of unethical behavior, trying to evade Freedom of Information Act requests, keep data out of the hands of people that they felt might criticize them, trying to get journal editors fired, trying to circumvent IPCC protocols for paper availability and review processes and on and on and on. And I thought, well, <clears throat> if this is what's going on to create the so-called consensus of the IPCC, there is no way that I should be supporting this and you know substituting it for my own judgment. So I started speaking out about this, talking about we needed to make our data publicly available and our methods completely transparent. We needed to be more honest about uncertainty and avoid being overconfident. And most importantly, we needed to interact respectfully with people who disagreed with us not try to attack them and cancel them, you know, but engage with them in the scientific debate and arguments, you know, the way the scientific process is supposed to work. Well, I thought, you know, these were motherhood and apple pie kind of statements that everybody would agree with. But there was complete silence from the climate establishment, apparently, you know, by criticizing important people and implied criticisms of the IPCC. I mean, that made me quite an outcast in the climate community. And the way they decided to deal with me was just to call me a denier, you know, throw me out of the tribe and toss me, you know, in the group of scientific cranks and politically motivated fossil fuel supporters. And that was an easy way to dismiss me. You know, I continued speaking out and I started a blog in 2010. And, you know, I was continued to fight the good fight. But the publicity that I generated, negative publicity that was generated surrounding my statements were very substantial. I found myself in hot water at my university at Georgia Tech. And I started looking for other positions. And I found out that I was essentially unhirable because if you Google Judith Curry at the time, it would be Judith Curry, science denier, Judith Curry, serial climate 
disinformer and things like that, you know, and what university is going to hire me with that kind of, you know, social media profile. So I said, okay, I'm done. And I had started a company a few years previous, Climate Forecast Applications Network. So I left and went full-time into the private sector where I'm helping real decision makers make real decisions about managing their weather and climate risk rather than, you know, and I, I stay out of the politics pretty much, but I'm trying to help people make sensible decisions. I read your book that I think came out just this year, Climate Uncertainty and Risk. And um, I found this book uh, extraordinarily interesting. I mean, not only because of the climate part that's in it, And to be honest, I was even more intrigued by the non-climate parts, like how to deal with complex risks and wicked problems, how to communicate, how to also how science is supposed to work and how it's working in reality on occasion. And we're going to, I think, talk about some of these topics. And also, of course, I recommend that the readers get a copy of the book and read it because it's really very, very fascinating. But As you are obviously climate experts, we should also I should also ask you clearly some climate questions. So what is your understanding of the current status of climate research in, in, in terms of where are we standing with anthropogenic climate change? What is your opinion? Are we in a catastrophic catastrophic mode? Are we in natural changes? How much anthropogenic change? Can you give us maybe a brief summary of what your understanding is? Okay, well, the climate risk is, is much less than it seemed to be even two years ago. Uh, most importantly, the UN has dropped the extreme emissions scenarios, you know, which produce four to five degrees centigrade of warming and all the crazy bad impacts. I mean, they, they've dropped it. I mean, these are implausible. And what we're looking at now is in the UN is looking at, you know, more credible slower warming scenarios but that but the, the climate scientists are still addicted to these extreme emission scenarios because they give the most dramatic results <laughs> so we have this big disconnect between the science and the policy right now so the un is looking at a more modest a slow creep you know maybe another one to one and a half degrees centigrade over the course of the rest of the 21st century and even that is I think too high because they ignore the lower end of the plausible climate sensitivity values to CO2. That is the climate models are just running too hot and they largely ignore natural variability. A couple of big volcanic eruptions could completely change the trajectory of what goes out of the 21st century. We're looking at some sort of a solar minimum in the 21st century that will have an effect. And then there's internal climate variability associated with the large-scale ocean circulations. And sometime, say in the next decade, we're looking at a flip of the Atlantic multidecadal oscillation to its cold phase, which would have a big effect European weather and also eastern U.S. weather. So there's a lot of uncertainties about how the climate of the 21st century is going to play out. But the, the, the bigger question, and to me, this is the weakest part of their argument, is, is warming dangerous? 
you know, the slow creep of warming. Yes, there'll be some sea level rise and some melting of glaciers, but this is happening slowly. And all of this started in 1860 as we came out of the little ice age. And so we've certainly adapted to what we've seen so far. You know, humanity is thriving relative to, you know, even 50 years ago. And the other thing is, you know, the planet is greening. Agriculture is in great shape. Incredible agricultural yields have skyrocketed. And the other issue is, you know, warming. You know, in the U.S., people are moving south to warmer climates. They hate cold winters. You know, they're leaving states like New York and Illinois, and they're moving to Florida and Texas with very warm climates. The biggest piece of stupidity, really, in all this is blaming bad weather on fossil fuel emissions. People tie every extreme weather event, flood, hurricane, drought, heat wave, to man-made warming, when in fact, this is natural weather and climate variability. Even the UN climate assessment reports find that only heat waves, this is the only extreme weather type, you know, that's that's worsening. And then it doesn't change the frequency of heat waves, but makes them a tiny bit worse. It also reduces the cold weather extremes, which is overall good for mortality because an order of magnitude, more people die in cold extremes than heat extremes. You know, the warming seems like a good thing. So, so this is the weakest part of the argument as to whether warming is dangerous. So in my opinion, that's where we're at in terms of the climate debate. And it's becoming harder and harder for what I would say the extreme alarmist, you know, to justify you know, the emergency crisis, code red, you know, whatever the red highway to hell, I think it's the latest, you know, in the face of the slow creep of warming, you know, that there's, there's really, we're facing deep uncertainty about how the climate is going to play out in the 21st century, largely because of natural variability. Not to mention the fact there's a huge amount of uncertainty, even in the sensitivity of climate models to CO2. So we don't really know how this is going to play out. So all these targets, you know, emissions targets and 2030 and 2050, we have to net zero. All of this is just political. It's politics. It's not based in science. I mean, where does this leave us? <laughs> you know, if you look at this sensibly, you know, this rush to wind and solar power is a disaster. Of course, we should sort of think about a 21st century energy infrastructure that's better than what we have, that's cheap, abundant, you know, reliable, secure, and isn't so vulnerable to extreme weather, fires, extreme cold events, windstorms, and so forth. So, you know, let, let's innovate, you know, think about it and use the 21st century, you know, to develop new technologies and to, for learning curves to, you know, see what works and see what doesn't. But instead, what we're doing is, oh, because of the urgency, we have to use what we already know how to do, and which is quick, which is wind and solar. And, you know, every... Every week for the past several months, 
you know, I've seen some, you know, disaster about companies going bankrupt or cost overruns or political demonstrations against this. You know, this is just, you know, a, apart from the technical aspects of it and the horrendous land use requirements, or even worse yet, coastal ocean <laughs> use. I mean, it's just not politically or economically viable. So, so the sooner we get past that, the better. Nuclear seems to be becoming more politically acceptable, and I can only hope that Germany will see the light. But it's become, you know, it is costly to install it. But once it's there, it lasts for a century. <laughs> it's, it's very inexpensive to operate. So we just need to make that investment. Sure, there, there's new, you know, advanced geothermal technologies and new things that people are thinking of, and that's great. But in the near term, the smartest thing that people can do is restart their existing nuclear power plants or not shut them down. The anti, you know, like the Greenpeace type people, the anti-nuclear crowd, I mean, I mean, they hate nuclear even worse than they hate fossil fuels. And it, it just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make I say, sense. I think, they hate, I think they hate nuclear even more than climate change. Because otherwise, I, I agree. I think so. <laughs> no, uh, I, I made a number of episodes about uh, energy and also nuclear. So I think I'm totally with you on that side. But I would like to to get back to climate risk because I have a hard time squaring two things. To be honest, let me try to paint the two pictures, and you tell me what you think of them. The one picture is like what you just said now, and this is I would say pretty much an agreement to what people like Björn Lomborg says, or also. Uh, Roger Pilke Jr. is, I think, making similar statements. Number one, that yes, we have anthropogenic climate change, but the effects are manageable and also there are positive and negative effects. Also, some things like hurricanes and wildfires are actually not increasing and so on and so forth. So, and, and the number of people who die from extreme events and so on is actually going down. So this is the, the, the one picture that I have to say that I wrapped my head around myself on in the last years. But the second part is you talked about uncertainty. And the problem with uncertainty is, though, it cuts both ways, right? And when, uh, let, let, let's forget climate for a moment. But when you look at, at other complex systems, complex systems, for instance, like ecosystems, like when you, when you look at ecosystems, there is something that biologists call regime shifts. There are, so like when you have a system that is stabilizing a particular attractor, and then you push it and push it in one point in time, sort of it switches, it jumps over a tipping point and then falls into another regime. And this other regime can be quite different from the from the one you're operating in at the moment. And I think this is where I'm personally quite nervous about it because is it not so that climate can also have tipping points? And even if we move slowly, that's fine, but we could cross tipping points and then we, as I said, uncertainty cuts both ways, right? So it could also be that we run into much more dramatic problems. So how do you see these post pictures? How do they square out? Also maybe with the background of like the hot summer and hot autumn that we had and media constantly tells us that we had the hottest, I don't know, year in the last, I don't know how many, 10,000 years or whatnot. So how does this fit uh, square together for you? Okay. In the 21st century, century, something bad could happen to the climate globally or regionally. But if it does, it's almost certainly to be driven by 
natural climate variability rather than the slow creep of fossil fuel emissions. In, in, in the early 1800s, there were three hugely explosive volcanoes. Tambora is the one whose name I remember, and that was the year without a summer, and it dropped temperatures by a half a degree for more than a decade. I mean, something like that could happen again. You know, that's just an example. So there's all sorts of things that could happen. The West Antarctic ice sheet is unstable. It's not being caused by climate change. Antarctica is actually cooling quite a bit, but there's under ice volcanoes. Okay, some of them are active. Okay, so it's being heated from below. If that were to collapse, it's going to be largely driven by geothermal activity, not by burning fossil fuels. So there are bad things that can happen. So how do we deal with this? I mean, two things. We need to reduce our vulnerability to extremes, and we can afford to do that if we're wealthy. <laughs> okay. Wealthy countries are much less vulnerable to whatever mother nature might throw at us. So we want to do things that help our economy and we're crippling our economy by all these games we're playing with fossil fuels. So that that's going, you know, working against resilience. And, and so, you know, we just need to increase two threads. We need to reduce our vulnerability to weather and climate extremes by increasing our resilience. And then we need to work to minimize our footprint on the planet. I mean, you know, there's 8 billion people. Of course, we're going to have a footprint on the planet, but we'd have to figure out, you know, how we minimize that in sensible ways that support human well-being, flourishing and thriving while at the same time supporting ecosystems and ecosystem services that we rely on. I mean, that's the big challenge of the 21st century. And cutting off fossil fuel companies at the knees, you know, just makes all this worse. You know, if people don't have enough heat to power their homes or they can't afford it, they cut down trees and they burn wood, you know, which is bad for the environment, far worse than you know, a coal-fired power plant with good pollution control on it. So we end up doing stupid things in response to this mandate. And, and the other thing is biofuels. I mean, sure, if there's waste biomass, go ahead and burn it. <laughs> but in the U.S., 40% of the corn crop is burned, you know, for gasoline and fuel. And then, and in the Europe, you know, seed oils. You know, a couple of years ago, there was a seed oil shortage because all of that was going, you know, to convert into fuels. And then we have the nonsensical practice of cutting down forests in Canada and the eastern U.S. and shipping the wood pellets over to England to be burnt in their Drax <laughs> power plant. And people think that this is renewable and good for the environment. It's, it's insane. All of this has led us to do insane things that harm our environment and harm our economy, and thus reduce our resilience to whatever Mother Nature might throw at us. This is a very interesting aspect I wanted to discuss with you too. You, you said resilience. And uh, I made a I made a, an episode some, some months ago, and I was researching by myself a little bit. And if you, you, you can, of course, uh, discuss the list that I came up with, but, but I was, I was researching 
from whatever papers are found about existential risks that could harm our modern society. And I came up with something like 10 to 15. I don't want to go through the list. It's like a moot point, but there are things like nuclear war. I think everyone would agree that nuclear war is not a great thing and would That's certainly right. create a lot of a lot of damage to our society. There are things like viruses, pandemics, and not necessarily natural pandemics. It's good. I mean, when you think where where a synthetic biology is going, it's quite unfortunately likely that someone in the garage builds a virus or something of that sort and unlocks a global pandemic with a synthetic pathogen or whatnot. The collapse of our energy systems, our financial systems, all of this stuff has quite some quite some significant threat on us. And what I'm personally a bit afraid of, and Neil Ferguson makes this point also, I made a link in one of the other episodes, like we are focusing on one problem, in my opinion, climate change. That is, in my assessment, but maybe you have a different opinion, one out of 10 or 15 significant issues. And the question is for me rather, how can we get a society to a place where we can handle more than one threat, where we can handle a, yeah, a significant number of different threats? Do you? What is your opinion about that? One of the most idiotic things that I've come across in recent years, and I included this quote in my book, was from the World Health Organization. I think it was a statement made around 2018 that climate change is the greatest health risk facing the world in the, <laughs> in the in the 21st century. And of course, a few years later, we see COVID, which, you know, is a much more serious threat. I mean, if these clowns in the health community spending all their time worrying about adverse impacts of climate on health, and they weren't paying enough attention to pandemics, you know, I mean, you know, already, I mean, it's, we were just totally unprepared because the whole worldwide health community was focused on climate change. I mean, I mean this just shows how all this leads to stupidity. The biggest climate risk is another ice age, which if, if they occur on schedule might occur in another 4,000 years. I mean, North America and, you know, Europe were under almost a mile of ice. You know, that's, you know, we're, we're in an interglacial that we should cherish. And, you know, warm is not bad. So we just need to get over this idea that warm is bad. We need to decouple energy from climate. I mean, the energy issue is a separate problem. Okay, we need cleaner, more abundant technologies. We need to electrify Africa. I mean, these are primary things for energy systems. And climate should be about increasing resilience and reducing our vulnerability. We just need to separate those two things so we can make sensible decisions about both. The amount of money that's been wasted converting to wind and solar and all this kind of stuff, it's money that we didn't spend, you know, real solutions, you know, better energy technologies, reducing vulnerability, and more pressing problems, you know, like reducing our vulnerability to Carrington events, mm -hmm. you know, a solar storm that would wipe out our electronics and everything. I mean, you know, it, we're, we're, and not to mention, you know, the simple things to support the UN Sustainable Development Goals. This is a focus of Bjorn Lomborg, food security, educating women, and so forth and so on, ending tuberculosis, all of this kind of thing it can have an enormous impact for not all that much money. At this point, 
you know, we're making the environment worse and we're doing nothing to the climate and we're messing up our economy over this crazy net zero stuff. I mean, so the, the transition risk, the energy transition risk is far greater than any conceivable risk from climate change in the 21st century. And that message needs to get out there. We're just doing so many stupid things. And there's just this whole ecosystem, politicians and the media and university researchers who, you know, are self-reinforcing and it's, they get publicity, they get money, they get political power, but none of this is helping humanity or helping the climate. So I don't know how you break that. <laughs> I would like I would like to come back to science and 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 how science is operating these days a bit later. But maybe let's let's move to systemic topics that I also found very interestingly covered in your books. You mentioned the term "wicked problems," which I personally like very much. It goes back to a paper from the 1960s. Maybe you could give us your explanation, your idea why climate in the wider sense, so climate interaction with humans and so on, why why this is a wicked problem and what a wicked problem is and what characteristics such wicked problems have in a more or a more generic sense. Well, there's this tendency to want to simplify solutions and have, you know, a predict then act approach to solving the problem. You know, we can do this for simple problems or tame problems, but they try to put all these complex problems like a pandemic and climate change, and there's many, many others, you know, into this little tame problem box. Could you, give an example? Could you give an example of what a tame problem is so that everyone understands okay, what let, the difference is between a tame problem and a wicked problem? Oh, okay. So, so okay, let's give it, let's take concerns about a food additive, like red dye number two. Okay, there's some research that shows that it might cause cancer or whatever. Okay, and do we need proof? Well, from the precautionary principle, you would say, well, let's look at the benefits of red dye number two and see if they're so overwhelming, we should keep them. But if there aren't any real benefits and there are ready substitutes, let's just prevent it. Okay, so let's get rid of red dye number two and re replace it with beet juice or something. You know, that's an example of a tame problem where, you know, You, you you identify hazard, there's a solution that's pretty simple and nobody really objects to. Okay, that, that's a good example of a tame problem. But once you get into complex systems, everything from the human body to ecosystems to natural systems, you're facing complexity, uncertainty, and ambiguity and values about what people want, what they don't want, what they consider dangerous, what they don't. So you have disagreements. So it's really these three characteristics, complexity, uncertainty, and ambiguity and values that make it a wicked problem. So climate change is the mother of all wicked problems. And certainly the pandemic is another good example. But even if you're, you know, designing an electric utility pro, you know, system, You run into all different things, uncertainties, complexities, ambiguities, and values. You know, so, so especially on a global scale. Well, yeah, even a regional scale, <laughs> you run into this when you're designing, you know, infrastructure systems. You know, we just have to acknowledge in terms of how we manage these things, you know, it changes your framework 
you know, when you have a tame problem, predict, then act, and you want to control the situation. When you have a wicked problem, you have to acknowledge that you can't predict what's going to happen, acknowledge that you can't control the system, and at best, you can try to better understand it and manage the impacts. Okay, so it's a completely different approach to a wicked problem than the predict, act, control kind of situation. And this is what they're doing with climate change. Which brings me to an aspect of that I had with Erica Thompson in one of my episodes. And I think you also quote her in, in your book, if I remember mm -hmm. correctly. And we talked about models. And so I don't want to go into two details, but I still would like to understand what your perspective on the utility of models, especially in wicked problems, is. Because clearly we try to make simulations, we try to make complex models about the climate, about the economy and the interactions on. So what is your opinion about utility? Because there is this 1960s, 70s, the Austrian systemic researcher Ludwig von Bertalanffy, and he wrote in his book, uh, models are serve as a working hypothesis for further research. So his opinion was that models are a good research tool to figure out Uh, what you understand, what you don't understand, and then continue to work. But clearly, we use models for much more. And, and Professor Thompson had was of the opinion, I think, that models are useful for more. But I would like to get your take on this on this question. Okay, when you're talking about complex systems, okay, let, let, let's say aerodynamic model that is used in the design of airplanes. Okay, this is fluid dynamics. There's still uncertainties about turbulence and a lot of things, but they tune them up and they have enough experience and they trust that model to help them design a new airplane. Okay, so that model is useful. It's been verified and validated and it's, you know, tested and this, that, and the other. So it's a useful model. Now, when we get to a model of a, a complex system, like we're talking about a climate model, A lot of the credibility for climate models derives from weather forecast models. Now, global weather forecast models of the atmosphere and increasingly coupled to the ocean allow us to predict weather probabilistically, you know, even out to several weeks. Okay. And seasonal climate models don't show a heck of a lot of skill, but, but the, the basic components of the weather model both in the atmosphere and the ocean, are the same as in a global climate model. Coarser resolution, but it's basically the same equations. But when you have the climate problem, there's all other things that come into play, like small nuances in the radiation balance that the weather models don't care about at all. Weather doesn't care about that and, and things like that. And, and so these models, the global climate models, they're, they're tools to help us test various hypotheses about large-scale forcing and this, that, and the other. So, so, that, so they're learning tools. I agree with that quote you provided. They help us pose hypotheses and even test some hypotheses. And that's what they were originally designed to do. The problem is when the IPCC came along and they wanted to use these models as prediction tools, okay, and they were totally not fit for that purpose, And sort of how this came to happen is discuss, you know, how these became, you know, these oracles, climate models, or these oracles of the future, as discussed in I think 
chapter eight of my book, you know, the political and social dynamics and all that went into how these became, you know, so godlike. There's growing realization that, you know, these climate models aren't so great. Even the latest IPCC assessment sort of downgraded the use of climate models on a lot, you know, in a variety of areas. Whereas the fourth assessment report back in 2007, these climate models were godlike. A few questions arose in the fifth assessment report in 2013. (laughs) Now there's some serious questions being raised in the most recent sixth assessment report. So, you know, people are moving towards simple climate emulators, you know, just to produce the range of things that could happen related to CO2 emissions. And in all honesty, you can do that on the back of an envelope, (laughs) you know, with, with some of these where you use a transient climate sensitivity and projected emissions and out pops a global temperature increase. You can literally do that on the back of an envelope. And what's going on in climate modeling isn't, at the end of the day, isn't much more useful than these back of the envelope computations. I mean, it allows us to consider future scenarios and there's more sophisticated ways, you know, projecting natural variability into the future and looking at plausible worst case weather events. And I go through, I outline some of these methodologies in my book, but I think network approaches, I think we just are more useful for projecting forward into the future with a range of different possible scenarios that includes natural climate variability. And that's where I think we need to go with, you know, some of our planning. We need to consider a much broader range of scenarios than what the IPCC has presented us. When you say scenario in the climate, they say, oh, the emission scenarios, you know, the high emissions, the low emissions. No, no, we already know what the emissions trajectory pretty much looks like, certainly out to 2050 and probably out to 2100. That's the most certain part of the whole exercise at this point. Okay, what we don't know is the sensitivity of the climate to greenhouse gas warming, and we don't know how natural climate variability is going to play out. So, you know, these climate models aren't going to help us reduce those fundamental uncertainties. So we just need to take a different approach a broader range of scenarios and acknowledge that we're facing deep uncertainty in how the climate of the 21st century is going to play out. <laughs> and so like reducing fossil fuel emissions, we're probably not going to notice any impact on anything until the 22nd century, <laughs> you know, and that's assuming, you know, the climate models are right, which I don't think they are. So, so we just re- need to rethink this whole thing. It, it's very hard to justify you know, that things are horrible. The recent, you know, since May 15th, the world's climate started on this insane warming trajectory. It looks like we're turning the corner at the end of October, and this is going to drop down and been quite a spike. And so what's causing this spike? I mean, I did a, a blog post in August on this talking about, you know, what's going on. It has nothing to do with CO2 emissions. What's going on is there's increasing absorption of solar radiation since 2015, and it's really spiked up this past summer. This is driven by a little bit, you know, we're at the 
upswing in the solar cycle that gives us a little bit, the 11-year solar cycle. It gives us a little bit, not a lot. But, but the biggest issue is a reduction in the amount of clouds, which is allowing more sunlight to get in, and a reduction in sulfate pollution, pollution aerosol that reflects sunlight. And the biggest reduction is occurring in the mid-latitude shipping lanes because they've changed to cleaner shipping fuel, and there's fewer, fewer sulfate particles. So that's also allowing more sunlight to come in. And the other thing is that there's been a change in wind patterns, circulation patterns, where there's less evaporative cooling, and so the winds aren't cooling off the oceans. And that's what we saw in the the North Atlantic this season, which just got really, really warm. However, down in the Southern Hemisphere, there were some really big winds going from equator down south, big strong winds towards Antarctica, which was compressing the sea ice. So, so if you heard that, oh my gosh, there's record low sea ice around Antarctica, well, that's because there were really strong winds compacting the ice and Antarctica was actually quite cold. That's the one really cold spot. And the other thing that was going on, this we have the Hunga Tonga volcanic eruption from a few years ago. And this was an underwater volcanic eruption and it spewed a huge amount of water vapor into the stratosphere. And this is circulating around and it's actually, influ- apparently it's influencing the Southern hemisphere winter climate this past year, an early onset to the ozone hole and a big ozone hole this year is influencing the circulation patterns that are you know, compressing the sea ice. And that big pulse of water vapor has now made it into the Northern hemisphere. So this is probably going to influence what goes on in our winter as all. Also, so we've got clouds and Hunga Tonga, which are the big drivers. And then there is a human driver you know, related to reducing the sulfate pollution. And greenhouse warming is lost in the noise. If you look at the top of the energy radiation balance, you actually see the outgoing long wave radiation that CO2 directly impacts is actually decreasing when it should be increasing if it's greenhouse gas driven. It's more driven by what's going on with the clouds than it is by greenhouse gases. So so this is like 80% natural phenomena with 10% from the 10 or 20% from the sulfate aerosols. So that this is what we're looking at with this crazy weather. So by next year, you know, how long is this going to last? I think it's on its way down, but we'll see. In any event, 2023 will probably be tied for the warmest year in our historical record. And some data sets suggest that it will be the warmest. I don't know. We'll see how it plays out. But at the end of the day, it's mostly natural variability and absolutely nothing to do with CO2 emissions. So, you know. So we'll see, but, we'll see how that plays out. Mentioned another thing you mentioned, different scenarios. And I would like to get to the topic of resilience and risk management in, in, in wicked problems or in complex systems. And there is one interesting dilemma, I think, and you also mentioned in your book, as far as I remember, obviously, and let's forget about climate for a moment. Let's talk about generally risk management in complex systems. Let's say, of course, you want to avoid, and also Nassim Taleb writes a lot about this, you obviously want to avoid 
rare extreme events that could wipe you out. Like so, if you have like an an extreme possibility that it could kill you as an as a company or as a society or whatever, clearly you want to avoid that extreme that extreme risk. On the other hand, there is the dilemma, right? You can always imagine extreme risks, right? So the question then is, how much are you willing to invest to counter that extreme risk? Because if I invest everything to counter one very unlikely extreme risk, I probably increase other risks. So how do I how do I handle this problem? When you do a risk assessment, risk governance, you want to look at you know, what you're proposing to do about it and consider unintended consequences. Okay, so so you have to look at the benefits and the costs and the unintended consequences. And then you have to consider that risk in the context of the other risks in terms of how you want to prioritize your expenditures. So when you have an existential risk, and I guess that would really be like an asteroid hitting the Earth. I mean, the, the really only thing you can do that this is when the precautionary principle comes in. I mean, the, the precaution trying to prevent the risk is about all you can do. I don't know how we would figure out how we actually survive an asteroid risk or how we would even plan for that. So NASA and maybe the European Space Agency are developing strategies to deflect asteroids. And I think they've done a few experiments on that. So I think that, you know, that, that's worth doing. You have to prioritize the costs, the, the level of uncertainty and the, you know, expected efficacy of your investment, you know. So you have to rank these things and consider all of them, you know, in context, you know, nuclear war, that, that's just a political issue. That's nothing that technology, uh, you know, can really help with. But you but you yourself mentioned before another risk that, in, incidentally, no one knows when I'm t talking about this. You mentioned the Carrington event. And this is, I think, a very interesting, interesting, let's say interesting, interesting thing because it, it happened. It happened in the 19th century, at least. We know that I think it happened in 1880-something, I believe. And the Carrington event is like, a, my understanding, a strong sun explosion. I don't know how you would describe it. That hits the Earth with particles, and it would pretty much kill a lot of electrical infrastructure. And of course, in the end of the 19th century, the effects were quite limited because there wasn't a lot of electrical infrastructure that was real important for society. But today, if a Carrington event would hit us, and by the way, in one of my other episodes, I quote: "There's a longer report from." The Lloyd's Insurance, or Lloyd's of London, and, they, and and it's not like a fringe, not a fringe society, you could say. And they made a long assessment of what would happen to North America if a Carrington event would hit it. And this is pretty catastrophic. And they talked about weeks or months or even longer without electricity. And I mean, a society like ours without months without electricity is quite devastating. And I don't see anyone talking about that. And I don't see anyone preparing in any way for such an event, for instance? I think, okay, it, it's communications and electric transmission. So I think the move to microgrids, which I'm a big fan of, I talk about that in chapter 14 of my book. What is a microgrid? Microgrid, is, it's, you know, when you see all these transmission lines and all this kind of microgrid is, your power is mostly in place, generated locally in a community transmitted locally and it may have a connection 
to the larger grid, but it can be shut off and, and the grid can be isolated if the larger grid goes down. And so, you know, this is, I think it helps reduce the vulnerability of the grid to this kind of things. Um, I have households, I have solar panels on my house and two Tesla power walls that provide some power in an outage. And I've done that, you know, for energy security reasons. People are purchasing propane tanks as backups because they don't think wind and solar is reliable. They can't rely on the grid. They, I mean, President Obama, he has a new house and Martha's Vineyard, apparently a some insanely large propane tank that he bought for his property, you know, thousands and thousands of gallons. You know, so people are, are doing this for, you know, so, so these these large transmission grids that are required for wind and solar power to, you know, the wind is blowing somewhere, we'll transport it from there. That's the idea. But it makes the, the whole system very vulnerable because these systems go down and also certainly vulnerable to a Carrington event. And the land use requirements are absolutely insane. Okay. And it's People don't like it aesthetically. I think it reduces their property value and it's bad for ecosystems. <laughs> so, but but it also increases the vulnerability of our electric power system to something like the Carrington event. And things like that should be considered in the design of the 21st century electricity systems. How to get around the communication outages and GPS and all this, you know, I'm not sure. But I think electric power, we, we should be able to reduce our vulnerability to Carrington events by including this in our planning for the 21st century energy infrastructure. And, and the focus on such more resilient networks would also help with a lot of other potential catastrophes or potential in hurricanes or wildfires. Yeah. If you can isolate, you know, that then you reduce vulnerability to the whole thing. You mentioned another thing that I would like to discuss with you, and this is the precautionary principle, because this is something that a lot of people know, and it's also quite, I would say, deeply entrenched in European Union legislature, or at least it's quite popular here. My feeling is that the precaution, maybe you could briefly explain what the precautionary principle is, and my gut feeling is that the precautionary principle is not really, it's either trivial Or it's not really working in complex problems, or am I am I seeing this wrongly? Okay. <clears throat> First off, I want to define caution, precaution, then precautionary principle. Okay, caution, you know, you look both ways before you cross the street. You, you do think, you know, you be cautious about doing things. Okay, about known risks, known problems. You try to minimize your risk. Precaution is in a situation where there's scientific uncertainty. Okay, we don't really know that this would be the red dye number two. Well, we're not sure it causes can cancer, but you know, let's just get on with it and prevent it anyways. Okay, the precautionary principle was really introduced in an environmental context is that uncertainty shouldn't get in the way of preventing something. Okay, so that's a precautionary principle. That's the red dye number two. But but when you get into a complex problem, <laughs> you know, you, you end up with a cure being much worse than the original disease. Okay, you end up with that kind of a problem. And for for wicked problems, 
precautionary principle at best points you to a problem that you should do something about, but it's not a decision rule. You know, it's just maybe points you in a direction of that. Well, maybe you need to do complete risk assessment, you know, develop some risk management plan, some different ones and evaluate them against costs and unintended consequences and see what, if anything, it makes sense to do. So, so that's how you would handle it. But for a wicked problem, the precautionary principle just sort of says, okay, <laughs> this is something you should take a look at and try to figure out if you can prevent harm in some way. Yeah. And, and this comes into, you know, grading of risk, you know, until recently, fossil fuels were regarded as a tolerable risk. You know, the benefits were very substantial, but they obviously pollute. There's, you know, geopolitical issues and things like that, but overall beneficial. Yeah, the point that comes to my mind is, and I really have a problem with that, like every time a new technology or a new procedure or something comes to, to the public attention, I see two things. Number one, we see it with a lot of the digitization, for instance. Number one, it seems to me that it's relatively simple to assess the first order risks or the first order effects. But what happens with this technology when it's connected with other technologies over the next decades is practically impossible to predict. It's number one. So how should the precaution principle work when it's more or less by definition impossible for most modern technologies to assess what happens in 10 or 20 years? That would be the first problem we see. And the second problem is it's always in our media landscape rather easy to focus on the risks, on the problems of the technology. Oh, no, we don't want that risk. But what is then often not communicated, I think, is, okay, if we don't use this, you have opportunity costs because exactly. this, this technology also has some benefits. Otherwise, we wouldn't consider it, right? We wouldn't consider an idiotic technology, would we? Uh, well, well, there's a parallel principle called the proactionary principle, okay? And that's discussed in Chapter 10 of my book. And this is where you balance the benefits of the innovation, okay, with the risks. I mean, every innovation is probably associated with some conceivable risk, but you have to, you know, balance all this. And and so, yeah, the the European Union is really more on the precautionary side, I would say, than the U.S., which is a little bit more proactionary. So you need to balance this, otherwise you're you're, you're not going to advance as a society. So have to be careful about that. And the other thing is systemic risk. I mean, when you in, in our complex society, I mean, the environment isn't the only thing, and climate system isn't the only thing that's complex. It's society, and and we're so global in terms of you know trade and resources and and everything that if something happens in one place, it can have downstream effects. I think an example in my book. I think it was a tropical cyclone that hit Thailand, I think it was, and the flooding disrupted their chip manufacturing, which the U.S. was heavily reliant on. This had very adverse impacts on industry in the U.S. for almost a year because of a tropical cyclone that struck Thailand. You know, that's an example of a systemic, you know, we, we face systemic risk all over the place. Can we 
predict, you know, every little thing. We can't, but we need to take a systems approach to thinking about all this. You know, this tame, you know, you can't make this little box, carve off a little problem and do the mm. predict and act and control. You know, you have to consider all the systemic implications of all this as best you can, you know, and then figure out how to to manage this. And probably in our society, this means that we have to take a certain amount of risk and con continuously monitor what's going on and then react exactly. when we know when we realize it, no? Yeah, and, and one of the characteristics of robust decision making is sort of to do things incrementally, you know, evaluate and learn and be flexible so that as new problems arise or new technology, better technologies arise, you know, you can adjust and improve. So, you know, it's don't throw all your eggs in one basket kind of approach, you know, incremental multiple paths and learning curves and, and just acknowledge that, you know, you have to go through this process rather than making these draconian political proclamations of this is what we're going to do because you're facing situations where you'll have multiple adverse systemic risks that are caused by that. And the net impact could be much worse than doing nothing incrementalism and local decisions rather than these global top-down decisions, hmm. you know, help you avoid making really bad decisions. It was about 20 years ago, I read an economics book. I have to look it up what, what the name was. And they sort of suggested procedure that they called seed, select, amplify. So the idea was like, you should try to seed in the sense of try different things on, on so that none, none of those could be catastrophically wrong. So try different things. Then select means observe what's happening. Then and amplify means, means then choose what's working and amplify that, but continuously do it again. Does this uh, yeah. resonate with you? Yeah, that's very consistent with the concept of anti-fragility. This is Taleb's anti-fragility. That, that's one of the anti-fragility, you know, try experiment, try a lot of different things. Okay, and then you see what works. Yeah, that's one of the anti-fragile strategies. As more or less the last question I would like to ask you would come like to come back to the state. Let's make it big. The state of science. My my gut feeling is that we have some significant issues in science, and not not all in climate science. But I mean, observing this now since many years, like when you read, for instance, John Ioannidis wrote. I think you even quoted it. I have to quote me from your book how the pandemic is changing scientific norms. There was like Professor Krulov wrote a very nice article, The Perils of Politicizing Science, already some years ago. So it seems to me that we see quite a deterioration in the quality of science, while at the same time a politicization of science. And also there are a number of good studies that indicate that we have over the last 50, 100 years pretty much an exponential increase in the number of scientists and also in the formal output in, in terms of papers or however you want to quantify it, but at the same time, actually quite a reduction in the quality of output. And this is this doesn't sound good to me. Is this your, how, how do you see the situation? Well, I mean, I, I agree with all of those things. Okay, back in the 80s, you know, right when I got my PhD, you know, I was starting, I'd go back and look at, you know, look at the literature and it seems like there were a relatively small number of journals and 
most of the papers were significant in some way. Okay, now you have this explosion of journals, and it's hard to, you know, you can read a dozen of them and not find a significant paper. The worst thing is that the most prestigious scientific journals, say nature and science, have become deeply politicized. You know, an example is, I think it was maybe 2018, and I include this example in my book, the editor of science, Marcia McNutt, penned an editorial that was published in Science called Beyond the Two-Degree Inferno. The time for debate is over. Global warming is awful. We need to do something about it. So, so what message does that give to scientists who would want to submit a paper that might challenge something about the narrative or the editors in reviewing such a paper that it actually got submitted? It wouldn't get published. It's even worse than that. But, you know, Science just rejects, and nature rejects these paper out of hand before even sending them to peer review. You know, it's not interesting. They're not interested in challenging, you know, the party line. And so you have all this gatekeeping. And so scientists figure out what side their bread is buttered on. And, you know, this is what they produce. And it, it's very bad for, for science. And this happens in any field where there is a societal impact, pure physics, pure chemistry, you know, are relatively immune, but almost any other field, you know, is getting caught up in this. And, you know, scientists with our king size egos playing power politics with their expertise. And this is encouraged and rewarded. And, you know, we have and cancel culture. Anybody who disagrees with you, the way to deal with disagreement is work to get them canceled. Okay, so we have this very toxic environment in academia, at least in the sectors that are politically re relevant, and I hate to say it, that's much of academia today. It's a very toxic situation, and this is why I left academia uh, back in 2017. I find it much more honest in the private sector, and you know, it's a very sad state of affairs. I mean, the interesting thing is that for most people, it's quite obvious that in fields like pharmacology or medicine, where there's a lot of money at stake, so people understand quite clearly that money can be an incentive to, let's say, find things that make you money. So in that in, in, in that field, it is quite obvious to many people that, well, we should have a good look at it maybe. But it, I think to, to most people, it's not so obvious when it's about ideological pressure points. Yeah, this is it. You know, you have to declare your conflict of interest, you know, whether you've ever received $1,000 to travel to a conservative think tank that gets funding from oil industries. There are witch hunts like that trying to tar various scientists with fossil fuel money. Two things, careerism and ideology are much bigger drivers for conflicts, for not being honest and thorough and open in your science. These are much bigger drivers than, you know, societally relevant topics. And it's not just ideology, it's also careerism. I mean, the, the way to become rich and famous in the climate field, such as it is, you know, is to be, <laughs> is to certainly to toe the party line, but to be vocally alarmist, you know, and hyper-political about the whole subject. These are the people who get 
big book deals and large lectureships and recognition from professional societies and attract donor money to big research institutes and so on and so forth. I mean, it, it, the incentives in the climate field have become absolutely perverse. What is quite discouraging for me is like I like to read uh, books and articles from the 60s, 70s or so. And Karl Popper wrote in the late 60s, like he writes about the importance of unorthodox this, uh, ideas and, uh, and how important discussion in, in uh, as that discussion is the core of science. And he also warns explicitly about what he calls big science. And he, he writes something to the effect that he sees the danger in the 60s. He wrote this in the late 60s. That this is the danger that good results get drowned in this in this big science convolute, and this this is quite I find terrible that we did not see this coming really and didn't counteract it. And hand in hand goes the idea of uh, consensus in science, where I mean consensus seems to be quite the antidote of science. No. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a big difference between a scientific consensus like the earth orbits the sun, you know, something that, you know, you don't even need to talk about consensus. These are well, well known and accepted facts versus a consensus of scientists, which relates to a manufacture of agreement on a complex and controversial issue, usually at the request of a government agency. And that's exactly what we've seen with the IPCC. This is a manufacture consensus. <laughs> It's their way of dealing with, The politicians want this because they're looking for a simple, you know, something simple, predict and act, you know, kind of situation and control. Well, sorry, <laughs> just the wrong, wrong approach. And in, in the process, it's perverted all of climate science very dangerously. At the end of the day, there's too much money supporting science, certainly in the U.S. We need to get back, you know, to to like real science, you know, and, and you look at people's CVs, you know, and, and they publish, you know, their names are on 20, 30 papers per year. I mean, do they even have time to read all those papers, let alone make a meaningful contribution? And, you know, these are the people with high number of publications, citation indices, age values, and this gives them prestige in the world of science. But I don't think these people are actually doing any science. You know, people with their names on so many publications. And this is a very, and these are the people that get rewarded. This is a very frightening state of affairs. You know, the individual scientist who publishes, you know, two papers a year, maybe with them and their graduate student as a co-author. These are the guys who are thinking deeply, you know, about a problem and probably making an advance. Okay, but they get no recognition. All, you know, their work is just buried somewhere. So, so the whole incentive system has becoming completely perverse, and universities are facing all sorts of problems that they've brought on themselves. And I hope this brings about a big rethinking of the bloated mm. administrative structures and the reward system, and, and all sorts. So many things wrong with the universities that. You know, maybe we'll see a change, but you could start by cutting the research budgets <laughs> yeah. at universities. I mean, if you have mission-based research, I mean, do it in a government lab or something and get rid of all this politicking and whatever. And universities is just poisoning the well at this point. That brings me to two final questions. The one would be, and, and this is one where I personally changed my mind in the last years, 
namely the question, what about science and activism? Because in my opinion, let's say 10 years ago, my opinion was if you're a scientist and climate scientist, for instance, but could be any other, any other, could be chemist as well or whatever, and you figure out something that is potentially dangerous for society or some such thing, then you sort of have the obligation as a scientist to also become active in the sense of maybe even politically active. And I thought, I thought at that time, that is like your responsibility because you know, so to speak. And I changed my opinion in the last years because my feeling was that as soon as that happens, the person becomes a bad scientist and a bad activist. It, everyone is harmed in the process. Where do you stand in that in that in that discussion? Okay, the, the role of scientists is to inform. Okay, if they see a harm or a danger, you know, to inform the public, work with decision makers. But but what we do about these harms is politics. It's not driven by science. Science will inform. There's just this naive thinking by science is that they drive policy. They don't. You inform policymakers of a problem or risk, and then the political process takes over. You may work with policymakers, decision makers, to craft a policy, to evaluate policies. I mean, that, that's working with them in a useful way. But once you become a political activist, You know, it's game over for your credibility as a scientist, as far as I'm concerned. You are no longer unbiased. You are no longer regarded as unbiased. So it harms your scientific reputation, or at least it should harm your scientific reputation. And scientists aren't very good political activists because they scientize everything. They have a naive understanding of policy and the political process. That said, the biggest activist, climate activist, Michael Mann, comes to mind, has been hugely rewarded for what I regard his unethical behavior, not to mention his political activism. So the rewards are there if you're an activist for a politically popular topic. And it's very dangerous to science. It's very dangerous to science. You know, I, I don't know how to change the incentive. Well, I do know how to change the how the incentives sh should be changed. I just don't know how to affect that change. So it, it's a big problem. So no, I'm I'm totally against. I engage in the policy process. You know, I give congressional testimony. I work with decision makers. I even write the occasional op-ed. But I'm not out there trying to convince people to do anything specific. Like even in my book, I want people to think more broadly about the problem. I don't make any specific recommendations. At least I've, I've, I've tried to be very apolitical and not policy prescriptive. My goal is to make people think more broadly about the problem. Rather, so so it it's certainly engaged. You know, it's a lot of policy stuff in my book. But it's certainly not advocacy for any particular actions. And I've tried to make it as apolitical as possible. So, you know, that's what I think is the ethical way for scientists who engage in the policy process to behave. But you've got all sorts of people, activists, and 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 they don't get called out. You know, people say completely unjustifiable things. 
climate scientists, and they don't get called out. And the other problem in climate science is it's a huge topic. The people who understand climate dynamics, like me, is like maybe 1% of the people who call themselves climate scientists. You've got ecologists, economists, communication specialists, you know, on and on it goes in all these different specialties who don't really understand what's causing all this, how to critically evaluate it. They're, they're reciting talking points, you know, of the equivalent of Al Gore's climate core you know, decades ago, and but they don't really understand all this. And they assume impacts and they're activists, all this, that, and the other. The people who actually understand climate dynamics Okay, Richard Lindzen comes to mind. You know, these are people that all get labeled as climate deniers. And these are people who have a deep understanding of climate dynamics, which should be at the heart of this whole thing, but it isn't. You've got this manufactured IPCC consensus, and the small number of people who can critically evaluate it are all dismissed as climate deniers. So you have this absolutely insane situation. What brings me to the last question, and I, I read your book actually exactly as you say. I read your book and I thought, interesting, there's not really a recommendation in there. It's more like it's more like you open up the topics and you explain and you, you, you lay out the landscape. This And this brings me to the last question. I had this discussion many times, more like over topics like COVID or so, but I think it's pretty much the sim a similar problem. You have a situation, let's say COVID, do not talk about, about climate, Uh, you have a situation that's clearly complex where a lot of different parts of society are affected, economy, health, I don't know, school children, what have you, international affairs, and so on and so forth. And you often hear from people who are in politics, let's say, we have to tell people, give them a simple answer, a simple thing, because people are not able to handle the complexity of the situation. And in my opinion, in my opinion, this is completely wrong. I believe people are able to handle much more complexity that we give them credit for. And I think it's extraordinarily paternalistic to approach the public in a way like, well, you're too stupid. I just give you the, you know, the very, my opinion, and that's how we do it. I mean, a democracy, a democracy I think, is dependent on, on discussion, on, on, on the fact that Yes, it's complex and nobody knows exactly what's right. So we have to discuss it. So do you think this is something that could work politically or would just entire chaos break loose, so to speak, if we would try that? Okay. Well, there's a whole spectrum of people, you know, from really the genuinely stupid, you know, maybe 10% that society manages to support in some way to experts who disagree with each other. Okay, you know, maybe another 10%. Then you've got the vast sort of middle area. And the middle area, the people in the middle are unsure what to think. But the most important message that they should get is that experts disagree and we don't know. Okay, so it's up to you to figure out how to manage your own personal risk. So once they see experts disagreeing, They're in a space where they need to figure out how to manage their personal risks. Okay. And that's the message that we should get, you know, trying to can't all the stuff that got canceled from social media about COVID was, you know, just unbelievable. I was fascinated by the subject and I read everything I could, you know, 
Russian papers, everything. Just fascinated by the whole thing. I mean, the disease as well as the, the social aspects of it. But but the end result of the whole COVID thing is that the people in the middle, middle now know not to trust the yes. experts. And in the yes. U.S., people are not vaccinating their children at all, not just from the COVID vaccines, but it's made people mistrust all the vaccines. So, so we've lost a lot of trust in experts in the U.S. as a result of really bad, bad advice from the Center for Disease Control in the U.S., not to mention the World Health Organization. The harms that were done you know, in the management. And and the U.S. is terrible. They continue to hawk the mRNA vaccines, you know, to small children age six months and above. It's on that routine vaccine schedule. In the in Europe, as we I We are not doing that, no. no. Like giving it to people 65 and older, which I think is the right approach. I'm over 65 and I'm not taking those vaccines. You know, again, I, I'm one of these people who had a non-trivial vaccine injury after my first booster. So, I mean, all of this sort of backlash from trying to treat this as a tame problem and control things, you know, with a single solution and control what was going on, first to control the epidemic, then control the response and whatever has just backfired unbelievably here in the U.S., But the hope would be, I see the same way you do, but the hope would be that we learn from that and we learn that people need to get the broader spectrum of ideas. And this is democracy. Democracy cannot be that one person says, yeah. I'm science. And if you if right. you oppose me, then you're against science, right? Both on the political side and the scientific side. You know, in the old days, disagreement and debate was a spice of academic debate, you know, life. You know, we look forward to it. Yes. We all learn something from it. You know, now we're out to cancel our opponents. Okay, on the political side, th there's a range of motivations for being extreme and trying to control on one side or the other. And there's political disagreements rooted in things, say, beyond COVID that polarize the whole situation. So you have this whole messy situation, but opening up, The debate, you know, on Twitter, God bless Elon Musk, you know, for allowing these discussions to happen. You know, a lot of the stuff is still censored, Facebook and other social media platforms. I mean, this is absolutely essential to have, you know, this spectrum of perspectives and range of scientific evidence that the public can look at and consider, you know, other otherwise, you know, we're just going to be come collectively stupid and that's in no one's interest. Julius, thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you.